right, we are live. Welcome back to the On3 podcast, everyone. I got myself, Salvi. We got my co-host as usual, Naveed, who's back to being my co-host today. Yeah, thank you. After we did a CPA episode last time, so he was the subject of our interview. But today we also have another very special guest. Basically, we call him the Brown Mike Ross. <laughs> really? <laughs> or the Brown Harvey Specter, whatever you want to say. Is, whatever is you that say. my Who name in the family now? <laughs> <laughs> the Brown Harvey Specter. Um, either way, to say that, um, this is my cousin. His name is Arav Dewan. Uh, I call him by a different name for who, those who are Bengali know that every every Bengali person has a nickname. But we'll go with Arav for this episode. He is a lawyer and he is here to teach us some IP laws. So before... Without further ado, I want to give him the spotlight to just share a bit about yourself and introduce yourself. Yeah. My name is Araf Dewan. I am, uh, an, I, I call myself an IP and technology lawyer. So IP standing for intellectual property. Um, and essentially uh, what I do in a nutshell um, is I manage patent portfolios, uh, trademark portfolios, um, and uh, manage anything that... I work in-house at a medical software company and I manage any of the legal or intellectual property issues that come in through the door. Um, and um, as, as part of that, like working at any kind of tech company, um, intellectual property is pretty important. Um, it's essentially your bread and butter. It's your, it's the foundation of what, where the business is valued. Um, and uh that's essentially what I do. I try, I do everything from drafting patents, pr prosecuting patents. I'm also a registered patent agent. Um, and I also, uh, and I manage uh, obtaining new IP, uh, litigating IP, and um, managing external relationships where we're collaborating with other businesses uh, to develop new IP, et cetera. Um, yeah. And uh, that's kind of me in a nutshell of what I do. That, that's awesome, man. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming onto the pod. First of all, I know being a lawyer, you're obviously extremely busy. <laughs> so uh, fun fact, he used to be my roommate back in the day, yeah. uh, like three, four years ago. And we were living in uh, in Scarborough in this uh, one tiny apartment, share, uh, share an apartment with the two of us. And I used to look at this guy from like 9 a.m. The days he would be in the office, he would go, go to the office, I think like what, at 8 a.m. Yeah. He'd come back sometimes at like 9, 10 p.m. And even then, he would go back on his desk and keep working. And I'm like, this guy is a workhorse. <laughs> and I used to feel burnt out just looking at you. <laughs> oh, man, I was burnt out as hell during that time. Yeah. So to become a lawyer, there's this period in Canada, there's this period called articling that you have to do. And the time that I was living with Salvi was when I was an articling student. It's similar to residency for doctors where you work. Well, I, I say you work like a lawyer, but you don't get paid like a lawyer. Ah, oh, that's <laughs> how they get to you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's only Canada that does it though, which, which uh, annoys the hell out of me. Everywhere else in the world, you just write the bar exam and you're a lawyer. But here you have to write the bar exam and you also have to work for 10 months to uh, become a lawyer. And uh, during that 10 months, you're doing all the work that a uh, first year associate would typically do. But honestly, like when I was articling, like there were, I remember there were actual days where I worked for 36 hours straight. Like I didn't sleep. Oh yeah. I remember those days yeah. too, where you would just stay up all night. Like you, I remember like I would be working, I'd be on my computer, you'd go to bed and uh, you'd wake up and you'd be like, are you still working? <laughs> oh, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, it's, uh, it's pretty, uh, it, it's a lot of work. Um, especially like I was working on Bay Street at that time. So like, 
you know, you're working those hours. Those 80 hour weeks are pretty common. There. Were you in the suits building? Uh, I was n- right next right to the next suits to building. Yeah. So close enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was on uh, King and Bay. Yeah. And suits is on Adelaide and Bay, yeah. which is one street over. Yeah, so you were basically living the suits life. Uh, I'd see it every single day. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Actually? Yeah, yeah. I walked right by it when I was w- going into work. Yeah. Oh no way! Yeah, yeah. It's because uh, it's the it's the building right over. So uh, when I was walking by from the bus, uh, bus station, I'd always go there. Oh wow! But it, it's one of the things that every single uh, I feel like law student knew about, and it's uh, what we would always talk about when we're overly burnt out, <laughs> overworking. I, I wonder how many people that show yeah. inspired to become lawyers. Probably too many. Yeah, um, yeah. I can imagine law school on its own cuts out a bunch of the um, a bunch of the people who really shouldn't become lawyers or went into the law for the wrong reasons a lot of people end up dropping out after within the first year if you make it past the first year you're probably going to stay in but um yeah like law school is kind of that way where your work um you have a lot of studying to do um it's just like almost every single professional uh degree like dentistry uh medicine whatever you it's everyone that had high grades, was high achievers, who then went and went into this profession. And uh, now you're in a profession covered, uh, filled with other high achievers. And you just have this massive amount of imposter syndrome uh, <laughs> that like just- I, take, I feel that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly, right? And like w- when you get to that point, it's just, uh, yeah, like it's a lot of pressure. You're working, all, you're studying all the time. You're trying to do all of this stuff that, uh, um, uh, because now we're at, like, when I was an undergrad, I, um, I would get graded based on, okay, how many answers did I get right in, as a percentage? Like if I got 80% of the answers right, I got an 80%, 90% uh, of the answers right, 90%. But in law school, you're directly compared to your peers. So even if you get 90% of the questions right, if everyone else got 95, you get a C. Oh, so the r- relative marking. It's rel- It's all bell curved. Yeah. yeah. So like... I, there were there were classes where I got like you know probably only sixty percent of the marks right, but I still got an A because everyone, everyone else, else yeah. like <laughs> flunked the exam, right? Like, and that's just the reality of it. Um, that's like I remember there was actually one 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 class I got the top grade in class, and I finished about sixty percent of that exam. Like it was ex- specifically an exam that was yeah. built that you could not finish. finish yeah. So this sounds like uh, one of those things: just be a bit smarter than everybody else. You're it, it's exactly a bit, a bit more hardworking right? too. Yeah, oh, sometimes it's a good thing in that yeah. there, like there's certain subjects that I just like was incredibly passionate about intellectual property in one of them, and so I didn't have to like I personally didn't have to feel like I had to work that hard mm-hmm. to be able to do well in those classes. But then uh, yeah, like I mean for me like if I'm not interested in a topic, I do shit in it, right? And so it's just like yeah, like those those kind of topics were always like tough, and it's like you're being directly compared with your peers. So like if you're not used to that kind of social comparison, um, constantly living in that, in that competition, um, it can be tough. Um, I think I might've told you one time, but there was like literally a girl that kicked me one time because I got a job. (laughs) (laughs) She kicked you out of, uh, no, no. Like she kicked me. Like she didn't kick me out. She just kicked me. Like (laughs) Like, with her, with her limbs. Like, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I had a real kick. (laughs) Yeah. Like it's a legit, I won't say any names, but like, yeah, it's just like, uh, cause she's a lawyer now too, but it's just like, you know, like 
in law school, only about 5% of law students get a job in their first year summer. Because really? it's supposed to be like the cream of the crop that gets the, uh, gets the job, right? Yeah. But I was used to being in science before I was in law. And when I was a scientist, you know, everyone's very collaborative. That's the mm -hmm. environment for scientists. You work with, we work together and you try to bring each other up. In law school, it's all about competition. Yeah. And uh, when I was in law school, I, <laughs> I, I was kind of stupid. I told everyone that I got this job, right? Yeah. And it's a job at a big law firm and whatnot. And uh, I, I was the only law student in my class that got that job. And um, because uh, there was one girl that was like so jealous that during our like uh, summer. Um, uh, right after like our exams were done, when everyone was going out to the bar, this girl was drunk and like she came up to me, she was like, you know, it's not fair that you got this. You don't deserve it. You're not like all this wow. stuff. And I'm like, girl, I don't even know you. I'm like, <laughs> like, like I literally didn't know her name. I'm like, how do you know who I am? And I'm like, I'm, I'm wa and I walked away and this girl came up to me and she kicked me. Like, <laughs> Tell me why that moment should have just been in a Suits episode. <laughs> it, it, honestly, you know what? I will say... Um, as far as the, how close suits is, there's a lot of drama in being a lawyer and yeah. going through the profession of the legal profession. There's a, at least I feel like I've been in a lot of drama, uh -huh. but, uh, I mean, definitely nothing illegal, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, um, I, I feel like there, uh, some of the drama can def like, I feel like when you have so many people and so much high emotions and high tensions, you're going to end up with a lot of drama. That's true. Especially yeah. over stupid things. But, <laughs> yeah. So let's uh, let's let's take a bit step back um, before we dive into the world of intellectual property and tech. Um, why'd you get into law? So, um, so I was saying before, like I actually used to be a scientist before I was a lawyer, and uh, so my I did like I did my master's in cellular molecular medicine, and uh, then I decided to go to law school, and the reason was because when I was doing my grad studies um, during my master's, I we were researching this new. Uh, um, we were researching this new gene pathway that we thought we could develop a gene therapy on to treat for diabetes. And during this whole process, I was like, like we were, the professor I was working for um, wanted to file a patent on that technology. And so I was constantly going to these conferences and writing these papers and whatever on this thing knowing that we might be filing a patent on this thing, right? And I had to learn a lot about patent law during my master's as a scientist to know what could I say and what could I not say so that we could still get a patent. And uh, essentially, like, you know, I got to the end of my master's. My, you know, my professor was like, um, he wanted me to do a PhD with him, and I had a full ride to do a PhD, it was actually awesome. yeah. it, it was actually legitimately the scariest decision of my life because I was at that point where I was like, I have this full ride to do a PhD. I would actually get paid to do my PhD, not even to uh, uh, not even just to do uh, not to like not even just I wouldn't have tuition. I would actually get paid to do it. Um, but if I went and like I felt at least for myself, if I went and became a lawyer, I'm sorry. If I went and became a scientist, I would be a good scientist, you know, I, I, I do a good job, but I got all this training in patent law while being in scientists. So, uh, so I already had these, this, all this knowledge that a lot of other law students wouldn't have had. So I could choose either between being a good scientist or becoming a great lawyer. Wow. And so 
I chose the lawyer route. Um, and that was, that was what it was. I said, yeah, I said no to a full ride for a PhD said yes to $150,000 of uh, university <laughs> tuition of law tuition school. Debt. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, I don't regret it. I, um, I, I've been very thankful for my career that I've had. I think it was the right decision at the end of the day. Um, the minute I went into law, like, I, uh, you know, like I, I, I was top of my class, did all, uh, got all these uh, top, uh, top grades, awards and whatnot that I didn't get when I was in science. Mm -hmm. And I think that validated for me that, law was the right profession for me, Yeah, you know? Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day too, like I've had a good career. I worked at a lot of the, uh, these big companies and whatever, so yeah. So, I mean, you talked about going into school for sciences yeah. and now you're doing intellectual property law. Yeah. So I would assume a lot of the training you got during your university and master's years are directly applicable right now? So. At the company that I'm currently at, it's a lot more applicable because yeah. uh, I actually, I was doing research on cardiovascular disease as it pertains to, uh, um, uh, cardiovascular disease as it pertains to diabetes. Mm -hmm. and, um, diabetic cardiomyopathy was the specific condition um, that uh, we were interested in. Um, and um, the company I work at right now makes medical imaging software for cardiac images. So... I, a lot of the stuff I learned about how how does the heart work and all the science behind that, uh, what are the different um, uh, uh, what are the different ventricles, what do they do, all of the anatomy of the heart, all of that, that became very applicable here. Mm -hmm. um, different conditions that uh, the company uh, that uh, you might want to diagnose, whatever. Like uh, so, when I see the jargon now uh, as it comes in, when it comes for a patent application or anything like that, like I, I'm already aware of it. Um, because it's something that I was doing for a few years. Um, my scenario is a very rare one. Uh, like cardiovascular, the, the intersection between the number of lawyer, uh, the number of lawyers there are that uh, study cardiovascular <laughs> disease. Um, you think you go into medicine? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. And yeah. also, just like the number of cardiovascular companies yeah. that need a lawyer. Like, th there's not a very, there's a very small Venn diagram, yeah. right? Um, but yeah, the, my, my situation pretty, uh, is pretty unique, but I will say that like throughout my career, even before I was at my current company, um, I had used like various parts of my scientific degree. And be, before I had my, um, I did my master's in cellular molecular medicine. I did my undergrad in medicinal chemistry. And mm -hmm. so I have this kind of varied scientific background of, I've got some chemistry, I've got some biochemistry, uh, bio, uh, molecular biology. And so when I uh, do these patent applications and whatnot, work for these different companies, um, I'm able to pull from different science backgrounds and whatnot. And it might not be exactly what I learned, but it's a um, very similar scientific adjacent field. And I think that's what you need to know when you're a patent lawyer, because uh, you don't need to be the expert in what you're drafting, but you need to know how to ask the right questions to get what you need in a patent application. I think that's really the mark of a good patent lawyer. So are, are a lot of patent lawyers from a science background or you can be from any background? So actually that's the, that's the other piece that kind of yeah. pushed me towards law because uh, yeah, to be a patent lawyer, most of the time you need to actually have a science background. Okay. In Canada, you don't need a science background to get uh, what's called your patent agent license. But in America, you do. Um, you, you get categorized based on your scientific background, your undergraduate degree. 
And um, you can only be called a class one patent agent. I think it's called class one or class A or something. But uh, if you have some, uh, an, either an engineering background or a science background in the hard sciences. And um, to be all quite honest, the way the industry works, most people don't really want a patent agent who isn't a scientist because your entire job is learning about an invention mm. and then uh, drafting a patent application. And so you're working with a bunch of scientists who aren't often aren't the best communicators, <laughs> um, you know? And so uh, but, uh, you have to be able to know how to speak their language. Yeah. And uh, more importantly, I think, uh, what's often very common in legal field is people are afraid of science. Um, I think that's the bigger drawback, uh, like inhibiting thing when it stop, stops other lawyers from becoming patent lawyers, is that people hear scientific jargon and they immediately are like, I don't understand this. I don't want to, I don't want to touch it with a 10 foot pole. Um, but I mean, having like, when you come from a science background, you understand these words aren't scary. Half the time they're kind of made up. Like, <laughs> you just, like, you know, like you, you just put a couple prefixes and suffixes together and you know what the prefix and suffix means. And so you kind of know what the word is, but, uh, yeah, that, but you know, that as a scientist, you, most like general population people, people going to law usually have a political science degree, um, law, might have an undergraduate law degree or, uh, business economics or something like that. Mm -hmm. those, those are more common uh, backgrounds to go into law with, but you can go into law with anything. And that's, uh, that's one of the things if you become a, uh, if you're coming in as a scientist, you have this kind of straight path into becoming a patent lawyer. There's not that many scientists that become lawyers yeah. and almost all patent lawyer positions are filled with scientists. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's kind of, um, supply and demand is beneficial in that respect. So you've talked about, kind of, we've kind of gone into directly into patent law and kind of thing you do. Um, so before I guess we go too much further, let's uh, give us a breakdown of what it is actually. What does IP law yeah. stand for? So okay, uh, I so I whenever I, I've done this talk a bunch of times. Yes, <laughs> I've talked okay. about this topic a bunch of times. I'll actually share an infographic with you guys uh, to be able to put on your video. But um, so intellectual property is basically this uh, bundle of. Um, is basically proprietary rights that you have to intangible assets. So what is an intangible asset? Um, back in the day, around, I would say like, you know, the 50s, 60s, 1950s, 1960s, um, most companies were valued by their physical assets, their, um, uh, their commercial real estate, their equipment, all of that stuff, right? Um, anything physical that you could uh, attach a price tag to. And, um, you know, you had your oil and gas companies at that time that were the largest companies. Um, and I'd say probably about, you know, 50, 60, uh, about like 70%, I think, was based on physical assets. But as we got closer to today's day and age, the value of intellectual property assets um, and intangible assets as a whole grew astronomically. Mm -hmm. And so intellectual property is essentially the rice that are associated with some of these uh, in intangible assets. So you have your patent rights, which are um, rights that go to an invention that is new, useful, and non-obvious. Uh, you got copyright, which is uh, intellectual property rights that are associated with works of art uh, or literature. There's a bunch of different categories, but art and literature are one of the more common ones. Software codes also protected by copyright. Um, and then uh, trademark protect uh, that's that protects brands, goodwill. Um, uh, anything that you associate with a certain origin source of goods and uh, trademark uh, trade secrets, data, 
uh, et cetera. Um, trade secrets tend to be more about the um, uh, anything that gives you competitive advantage and uh, um, anything that gives you competitive advantage and is um, obviously a secret. It's anything that's confidential. Like a KFC recipe. <laughs> well, okay. So that is a great example yeah. of a trade secret. KFC recipe, Coca-Cola, um, yeah. another good one. Uh, the irony though, so I know they're in current TikTok, in the current TikTok world, you've got uh, a lot of videos going around of people saying they know the KFC recipe. Okay. So this is the interesting thing about trade secrets is that it is only as valuable as the secret itself. So you've got all these people that are saying, oh, I know the KFC recipe here. You mix uh, these things together at uh -huh. these proportions and you've got the KFC recipe They go and make it. You know, if someone goes and reverse engineers your trade secret and they didn't do it through, you know, a breach of an NDA or something like that, yeah. then you have no protection anymore. Your, your protection under the law for a trade secret is only as strong as your, um, as your secret. Yeah. So if you don't keep good uh, tight uh, locks on it, then it's actually completely worthless. Um, Coca-Cola is one of the most well-known trade secrets and uh, the recipe for their drink. And, you know, you'd think it's just a cola beverage. There's a million and one. But realistically, there isn't actually another Coca-Cola, another cola beverage that tastes just like Coca-Cola. Yeah. And um, they, there's all this talk about supposedly only two people in the world know the recipe. They're never allowed to fly in the same airplane at the same <laughs> Wait, time. Wait, they're still alive? Supposedly. They're Supposedly. Like, they're, well, yeah. They're, they're, I think they have like someone who take, takes over the reins if someone dies. Supposedly <laughs> there's like, there and supposedly it's locked behind a vault and all this oh, stuff. Okay, okay. You know, like the, the, it's, it's written writing, but it's behind this vault. It's not written in electronic format anywhere. So the movies so. are true. So, uh, well, I, I don't know. <laughs> I haven't worked at the company. But uh, supposedly this is what the talk about it is, right? That's part of Coca-Cola's brand value too, right? Like the fact that they've got this well-kept secret, everyone, like, I mean, someone's probably reverse engineered the Coca-Cola recipe mm -hmm. at some point, but because you have this mental association with the Coca-Cola taste, you just don't think that it's actually tastes the same. But uh, yeah, it's, um, that that's a big part of the whole trade secret thing. Like, um Coca-Cola could have filed a patent on their uh, on their recipe when they first invented it, mm -hmm. uh, but a patent is only good for 20 years mm. uh, from the date that you file it. A trade secret can be indefinite, and Coca-Cola has been around for what, like 100, 150 years or something like that? Something like that, yeah. yeah. And just to clarify, like whichever country you file your patent in, uh, that's the country, like it varies from nation to nation, right? Exactly, yeah. So you have to actually file patent protection in the country that you want protection in. If you um, if you don't file for patent protection in a particular country, then it'll be it, then you won't have any protection. So one of the um, one of the things of it's often how people get confused with patents is that a patent is actually the right to exclude others from your invention. It's not actually a right to practice your own invention. And so what you can do is if you have a patent on something, you can stop someone else from mm -hmm. making that invention, making, using, or selling it. But um, it, if you don't file a patent in a particular country, you can't stop them from doing that. So it, one of the things as an IP lawyer that I have to do is I, as in general, when developing an IP strategy, you have to really think about what is the minimum number of countries I need to file in, in order to stop my competitors from eating my lunch. Mm. Um, 
because yeah, like for certain, especially say if you got com- uh, like for tech companies, you might care where data centers are, mm-hmm. right? Like where would the servers be? Where are your main competitors located? Like the, uh, the large ones. And um, for a manufacturing company, you might care where the manufacturing facilities are. And you might want to uh, isolate out the countries based on that. And um, it, based on that, like you want to be able to build this moat where uh, you file in X number of countries, but you have protection essentially around the world because um, because you've got the main countries, no one's going to bother trying and sell your patent and in, your invention in Guatemala when they can't sell in the U.S. <laughs> or something, right? So. Yeah. So look, uh, with the rise of what globalization, e-commerce, the digital space, right? How, how do you think the IP strategy for some of these big companies has changed? And yeah. like that standardization that needs to kind of, does it occur? Is there a level of standardization? Uh, sorry, by standardization, what do you mean? In terms of, uh, you know how each country has its own laws pertaining to patents? Yeah, yeah. So there's a bunch of international treaties um, gotcha. that govern um patent filing. And so there are expedited ways of being able to file patents in multiple countries in the, at once. So there's this uh, convention called the PCT. I can't remember what it stands for. Paris Convention. Treaty. You've been to it? Um, sorry? Have you been to it? I, I've been, I have not been to Paris. But, oh. <laughs> uh, but no, no, it's just what the treaty is called. Uh, oh, okay, PCT. okay. I thought it was a convention. No, no, no. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, sorry, I get, I get what you're saying. No, uh, not that kind of convention. But mm. um, yeah, it's a, it, they, ca- they call it, uh, we call it a PCT application. But uh, basically, it's this international treaty between a bunch of countries where they said, you know, we'll, um, basically anyone that files in one of our countries, they file a PCT application. It's called, a, it's an international patent application. They can also file that same application to with other countries and they won't have to pay that uh, a separate filing fee for every country. Because before you had a PCT regime, you need you needed to file a patent in America, in Canada, in, uh, in Europe, all separately. And it would cost a lot of money. Uh, PCT application, I think, costs like something, like it's about a $5,000 government filing fee. And um, it basically cuts all that down so that, you know, usually the math works out. If you're filing in at least three countries, then a PCT application makes sense. Uh, you can, because you can file in, think it's something like 100 countries around the world by filing this application um, and you just got check mark off. There's additional costs with filing more, um, uh, filing in all of them. So usually you still try to limit it to your minimum number that you care about. But uh, yeah, it, it helps reduce the cost for um, for innovators that want to get patents on their inventions. Mm-hmm. Okay. So with all this like laws pertaining to intellectual property, copyright, patents, and uh, stuff like that, how does how do big companies who have probably should have big lawyers or a big law budget get away with copying other companies' technology? For example, I think we talked about this. Um, Facebook copied stories yeah. from Snapchat, yeah, essentially, which are which are Snapchat stories. Then they copied Threads, which is ex- basically Twitter, yeah, which is now X. Um, how does that even work? Like. So, um, so this actually kind of goes back to what I was saying before. A patent is actually the right to exclude. It's not a right, a, f- a freedom to operate your actual invention. So, what ha- tends to happen, especially when you've got the technology space, the high tech space, is that there's so many patents out mm-hmm. in the world right now. 
basically everyone infringes someone else's patent in some way or shape or form. It's almost impossible. Sometimes you will end up, uh, like, you know, you, you'll get some licensing that happens and whatnot. But when you've got your Facebooks, your Snapchats of the world, they've got, Facebook has thousands of patent applications, tens of thousands, I think. Um, they're one of the biggest IP filers. And uh, so they own a ton of patents. And so when you have your patent on a particular invention, you can exclude others from having it. So think of each patent as a gun, it, but a gun for a very specific, with a very specific magic bullet. Well, you get to a certain point where, you know, everyone starts to have guns. And the idea is, well, if everyone's carrying around a gun, I won't shoot you if you won't shoot me. But whose gun is bigger? Who has more guns? You know, that starts to become the question, yeah. right? And uh, you get into the situation where, you know, you get a lot of these companies that are infringing each other, but um, they won't step on each other's turf because the other guy will countersue them for their own patents if they do. And then it's like, it's kind of like a mutually assured destruction if you do that. Mm -hmm. But um, when you've got these really big companies, you'll end up getting cross licensing deals that happen. Sometimes they will still sue each other. One of the big ones being Apple and Samsung. Mm. Um, way back in the day, uh, the Galaxy S3. Yeah. And um, the Galaxy S3 infringed a design patent of Apple's. And... Um, that uh, that particular phone looked remarkably like the I one of the older iPhones uh, of the time with the way that they had the home button placed, mm. the square shape of I the think phone. I had an S3. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, <laughs> so the S3 was actually one of the best-selling smartphones for yeah. Samsung, at, um, especially at that time, and that had, was one one of the phones that catapulted them into the market. So they. I, I'm almost certain they knew what they were doing, that they knew that they were infringing this Apple pa uh, patent, but they decided to go and do it anyways. And what did they do? They got sued by Apple for patent, uh, uh, for patent infringement. Um, Apple won, but this case took years to get to court. Um, then they appealed. It went to the Supreme Court. It then went back down to the, uh, the federal court. It, it kept going, getting appealed again up to the Supreme Court, went back down. Um, by the end... Apple got something like a hundred fifty million dollars, which sounds like oh, a lot wow. of money. Wow! But I mean, for them, it's well, it's it's pennies yeah. for Apple. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's pennies for Samsung. And the fact is, the Galaxy S3 is still probably one of the phones that catapulted Samsung into having the brand name that they currently mm -hmm. have, where they are now probably the largest Android phone yep. manufacturer. And uh, that's what set their pace. It was all through infringement of intellectual property. And uh, I remember, like, as patent lawyers, we were reading that case where Apple won $150 million. Everyone's like, oh, all the headlines were like, this is so much money. And I was like, that is actually a big win for Samsung. <laughs> Wasn't there a rumor that Samsung apparently set that money in, like, trucks full filled with pennies or something like that? <laughs> Where'd you hear this? It was, somewhere, it was a Facebook rumor, bro, back in the day. I think I Can't remember that, that rumor. I don't know how well, uh, I don't know how true it was, but uh, probably uh, I feel like the banks would not want to give out that many pennies. I don't even know if there's that many pennies in circulation. But. No, probably not. Uh, but, but it's really... Oh, go ahead. No, but that's a funny story that you mentioned ab on about Apple and Samsung. Because if you talk to any Android user, specifically, uh, you know, uh, users that uh, have a Samsung phone, they're always talking about the technologies or the functionalities of the phone that they have that yeah. Apple has copied. Yeah, yeah. And you know, 
they go back and forth. Like, yeah. hey, you know, each of these companies are copying each other now. And, you know, a lot of times, sometimes they will sue, sometimes they won't. Sometimes behind closed doors, they get uh, they make cross-licensing agreements. And that's often a way that they'll be able to get these features out to people. Um, smartphones as a whole, too, have become something that's so ubiquitous that there's a lot of competition laws that uh, apply to the industry. And so sometimes, you know, companies have to um, license out some of this technology, whether they want to or not, and allow others to use it. Uh, 5G technology being a big thing mm -hmm. um, that uh, company, that there are a lot of licensing, like mandatory licensing requirements where basically you say like, okay, well you can go and make this, but you have to pay me X percentage of royalties for every phone you sell or whatever. Um, or you have to pay me uh, 10, 10 bucks per phone or something, right? But uh, yeah, it, it, um, it, it's just largely because of what the product is. Uh, there's been a lot of laws that uh, came in into this space. Yeah. It's actually crazy how how many patents these companies file. Because I remember where I work now and even when I used to work back at IBM, we used to have some bullshit patents. Not even <laughs> <So> <laughs> IBM's a really funny one. Um, <laughs> IBM is kind of known in the patent space as one of the biggest patent trolls. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, their entire business model is around filing patents. Yeah. Um, they file more patents than almost any other country, in the, any other company in the world. And uh, they go and they get their money through licensing, licensing deals, mm -hmm. selling their patents, selling their assets. Um, it's actually really funny because, uh, what in, especially in the tech space, if you are at a company that is going to IPO, um, the patent lawyers, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when IBM will sue you. <laughs> because IBM has so many patents. When you go in IPO, your financials all become public. Yeah. And so now everyone knows how much money you have. And so inevitably after an IPO, almost every tech company gets sued by for a patent infringement by I, IBM. And then inevitably another headline comes out a, f a few years, few months, few years later, where it said like X company bought X number of patents from IBM and uh, or license X number of patents from IBM. So. So, so what happens in a case like that when you do get sued? Um, well, uh, you pay lawyers like me a lot of money. Okay. Um, but, <laughs> well, so uh, that's great for you. <laughs> it's, uh, well, <laughs> More lawsuits. <laughs> Shut up, IBM. I mean, well, yeah. So essentially what ends up happening in those kinds of situations is you'll get a cease and desist. And, you know, one, like the side that's getting sued will say your patents are invalid. Uh, um, the side that's suing is saying, no, they're not invalid. Uh, my patents are fully valid. And you're, uh, you owe me all this money because you're infringing them. Um, so... The person that's suing has the um, has the um, uh, burden of proving that they are um, the person that's suing has the burden of proving that the other person infringes their patent, mm -hmm. and the person that is getting sued has the burden of proving that the other guy's patent is invalid. And so usually they'll go back and forth on these fights. There have been cases where people uh, where companies have won the fight that the other guy in, uh, uh, infringed their patent, but then later on another court case uh, found that that patent was invalid in the first place. So it didn't matter that he infringed, it was invalid. Mm. And uh, so companies spend a lot of money on this and it's million dollar uh, lawsuits and whatnot. So it's a very expensive endeavor, but that's also why this is something that happens in the IPO space because uh, when a company goes public, it re requires a lot of money, a lot of, and, but they also have now access to a lot of capital. Right. And so the person suing knows that they can get that money back and um, by suing this other company. Where, and uh, 
when you're IPOing, you also have to keep a budget to uh, available, knowing that you are likely going to get sued. Oh, really? Yeah, mm, like, I didn't know that. It's one of the big things for any company that's going to go public. You you sh- you really need to be cognizant of the risk of patent infringement because um, and keep aside a budget to be able to defend lawsuits because some of them will, some of them might be valid. Some of them might often, most of them probably won't be, but companies will inevitably sue you because now they have their financials available and mm-hmm. easily accessible. What kind of percentages are you looking at though in, in terms of those contingencies or just, does it vary? So, I mean, sorry, in terms of contingencies, like you mean how many of uh, the potential of getting, you know, a lawsuit. So, okay. So, you know, it's hard to give an actual number because a lot of these cases settle out outside of court. But one number that I can say is uh, in the U.S., uh, they've got what's called inter partes review um, proceedings, and that's where basically you put a patent through um, uh, an expedited review to see whether it's valid or not. And this is often a defense that a defendant will use to try and invalidate someone else's patent. And um, essentially... I think the IPR review process often ends up with about an 80% success rate of invalidating another company's patent. About 80% of cases that go through the uh, IPR process end up becoming uh, end up with an invalid patent at the end. And so the reality is, um, I think, uh, it's not to say that all patents are invalid. I don't think that at all, but I think the reality is that um, if you spend enough money uh, to try and... <laughs> push some of this stuff, you can get the success that you want. Um, but then at the same time too, you you do have to be cognizant of what the actual marketplace is, what your competitors are. It's going to be very different if you get sued by Joe Schmo, who's never actually practiced in your industry, <laughs> has some very fringe patent that like was filed by a basement inventor versus if you are Apple getting sued by Samsung or Samsung getting sued by Apple. Obviously in that case, the patent was held valid. Um, Apple files hundreds of hundreds or thousands of patents a day. And so uh, they, they've got, a, they know which patents are good and they know which patents are, are not good. Um, usually when filing, that's obviously that's internal knowledge, but yeah. Um, based on that, uh, you'll always know when you're getting into these, uh, this type of litigation, your lawyers will end up telling you, okay, yeah, you, you're probably gonna have to pay something. Like we, we're probably infringing. We can we can still go about it X, X Y Z ways, but uh, or yeah, like we can fight this. We can get this get, uh, get a good decision on our end. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes people will fight it out of principle. Sometimes they'll just want to get a dollar at the end or whatever have you, right? So I heard this uh, saying, especially in the tech space relating to intellectual property, where it's like, um, if something is free, then you are the product. So in relation to yeah. social media platforms, right? What do they actually own? Yeah, so, well, so it depends on the social media company because some will actually file a lot of patents and most of them, pretty much all the public ones do file some patents. It's almost, no, no one's really going to invest in a company that doesn't have some proprietary tech. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the things that increases shareholder value. But uh, yeah, I mean, the reality is um, data is a really, really big uh, piece of intellectual property. Um, the, and that's kind of what, what, ha- uh, what a lot of these companies, especially AI companies nowadays will, where they're really valued is the quality of their data and how much data they get. Mm-hmm. And, um, 
data is there's some data protection regimes, but by and large, data is protected under confidential uh, information rules, trade secret laws, um, and uh, in some cases, copyright. Uh, you may not read the terms of service for some of the social media companies, but a lot of the data <laughs> I, I that we... Or that, that little 20-page yeah. thing that you just go... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I accept all the terms and conditions <laughs> at the end. Everyone does. Yeah. Um, even I do. Um, but I go back and read them just to know what the hell did I just agree to. <laughs> just in case. <laughs> Look at Mike Ross. <laughs> but uh, I mean, cause the reality is, I mean, are, are you going to really have a face, not choose to not have a Facebook account just because you don't like the terms of service? Um, you kind of need it for just life. But uh, yeah, I mean, the, uh, some of these social media companies actually own some of the stuff that you're uploading onto their websites, right? Um, so, uh, so when you have that kind of case, like the data is actually owned by them, even though if it's your data. And as a result, it's, uh, it becomes kind of bad for consumers in a way, right? You've gotten a lot of privacy laws that have come out as a result of this, where a lot of countries have said, okay, yeah, yeah, sure. You know, this is your data, you, you own it. But the reality is personal information is the information of the, that consumer mm. and it's the individual's uh, right. So you don't actually own that data. You need to get the consents and all that. So um, there's a lot that these companies try to do to still try and get that consent, try to- And Facebook uh, got into a lot of trouble. They get, they've gotten a lot of fines over, over privacy laws, Over right? privacy laws. And Mark Zuckerberg had that whole, uh, was it the deposition that happened? Yeah, the um, in front of the in front of the Senate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, Facebook's one of the big big ones in that space, and they're mm-hmm. they're they're constantly under a microscope. Yeah, uh, because they deal with so much personal information yep. on their website. Um, and the reality is too, that's kind of where their money comes from yep. because they've got this personal information. They use it for advertisers. Almost all their money comes from advertisers. And so, yeah, they, that, um, they, if they don't have good ways of being able to manage that, then yeah, they're, uh, they're not going to have a business anymore. Yeah. Right. Does that also fall into IP law or is that a different, it is still considered IP law. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, IP law in terms of the data aspect is yeah. IP privacy is kind of this adjacent, um, this kind of adjacent field, which, uh, has a bunch of its own set of rules mm-hmm. because that more so has to do with the personal information of individuals. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah. So when I call myself a technology lawyer, I, it kind of bundles all of these things between IP, contracts, privacy, right. all that stuff. Because, uh, yeah, like essentially these are the, when you work at a tech company, that's essentially what you need to know. Um, those are the, those are the big things that come in through the door. Those are the big things that everyone cares about. For sure. So speaking of tech companies and AI, um, we're a heavy topic in our podcast. Couldn't get enough of it. Yeah. <laughs> Is, uh, has been open AI and chat GPT and all that comes with it. So in a post chat GPT world, what does IP look like? Because now you have AI generating all this content, Yeah, people using content. And not only that, um, open AI probably used so much data from God knows where to yeah. train their models. And I can just imagine there's like a, a IP lawyers are just waiting to get their hands at yeah, ca- it, these cases. It's actually, it's going to be a huge problem. And, yeah. uh, to be honest, I think everyone's kind of trying to figure it out. To my knowledge, there's only been one company that has said that they they will take on liability for the infringement of their generative AI. So there haven't really been any cases that I'm aware of that have gone through on uh, 
who's infringing when a generative AI creates something. A lot of the terms of service for these generative AIs um, will say that if you know if you use this stuff that's outputted by it, you're the one that's liable. We're not the ones that are liable. But in theory, the company that provided the generative AI is at least somewhat liable mm -hmm. for the generation of that infringing product, um, um, in that infringing output. Um, the person who created it by giving that generative AI some input yeah. should also be liable. Um, but yeah, so I mean, the, but the reality is most people do not know where the hell this generative AI is getting this information mm -hmm. and how is it creating it? Is it completely plagiarized? Is it like- Is that considered a trade secret? So, so it, not, it wouldn't be a trade secret because if yeah. the generative AI has the information, then in theory, it must have gotten the information from some type mm -hmm. of uh, public source yeah. um, or some source that it was allowed, it was authorized to have the information um, unless they were breaching some sort of confidential uh, confidentiality agreement. But uh, in theory, let's assume that it got it from uh, good sources, uh, then it wouldn't be trade secret. But what could happen is, let's say I wrote a book. Um, mm -hmm. I wrote the Harry Potter series. You use the generative AI uh, to write, to tell it to write another book and you ask it to write a book about um, that like people will like and it starts to write a book about wizards and a kid with a lightning bolt <laughs> on his forehead uh, and his mother and his eyes are just like his mother and whatnot and he has to fight this guy who controls without, without a nose yeah without <laughs> a nose. and it, like you know when you've got this uh like it starts to become a little suspect yeah. right um you know most people would look at that and say hey yeah, like obviously this is Harry Potter, but um, you know, what if you didn't? What if you never read a Harry Potter book, and then you went and go went and published that book anyways? Are you infringing copyright? Um, you probably are. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one does. one of the things you have to have in copyright is you need to have access to the copy uh, the original work, and you need to make something that's the same or substantially similar. And in the case like what we just described, it probably would be something substantially similar. Almost everyone has access to uh, the Harry Potter books or is at least presumed to have access to it considering how famous they are. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, like uh, um, people have to be very careful when it comes to generative AI, when it comes to IP infringement. Um, now, the reality is too, is we've got a lot of startups using generative AI. Yep. And what is one of the big rules for startups is you move fast and break things. Mm -hmm. And IP infringement is often one of the things that startups get into a problem with. But I think the reality of how startups often work is they don't have the budget to worry about that kind of stuff. IP infringement, it's, you know, it costs at least $50,000 to clear a product for um, freedom to operate. It might cost more, it might be $100,000 depending on the complexity. And so, yeah, for a startup, that's probably very cost prohibitive. Yeah. And um, so when you're uh, when you're dealing with that, you need to um, be be aware that you know you might be infringing stuff. What I, what I what I what I've told startup clients in the past is like you know try to be aware of what's out there. Try your best to know like you know if you're like like I said like like the person who wrote that book about Harry Potter using generative AI he should they should have known that there was another famous book about wizards <laughs> in the wizarding world um, and probably put two and two together but uh, you know at the end of the day you might still end up getting into an IP infringement case and let, let's just hope it, it's when you actually have the money to be able to defend it yeah. um, because. It's not always like, you know, if you get sued by an Apple or a Google, yeah, you're probably going to the ground because they have the money to put you in the ground or buy you. Um, but 
if you get sued by somebody else, um, you know, there's ways of negotiating a settlement uh, where you can still continue to operate. Maybe you cut them a licensing check, a royalty, whatever. Um, uh, but yeah, like at the end of the day, like you, you might still have some options at the end, right? So I think for startups, it's really important to be as aware as possible of what IP is. But uh, yeah, you can't really get to, uh, um, you can't get into this decision paralysis just because of IP, but know what it is and know that it will be a problem at some point if you're ever successful. So that's from the standpoint of like, let's say if someone were to uh, have an IP infringement by using uh, yeah. chat GPT products, but could there ever be a case where let's say similar scenario, someone uses ChatGPT to, or any other kind of generative AI to write a book and that book becomes extremely popular. This person's a uh, best-selling author, um, a millionaire, whatever. Could open AI be like, Hey, you're using our material or our, or do they have any form of copyright on that? Yeah. So it's, so there's actually cases on this. Yeah. Um, so this one actually does have cases and it's actually really interesting because there is, um, uh, a, a project called the Artificial Inventor Project. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, a bunch of patent lawyers essentially that uh, have tried to put this question to the different IP offices of the world. Do, can artificial intelligence be the inventor of an invention, mm -hmm. be the owner uh, and be the owner of it? Um, and essentially the answer around the world has been no. Um, essentially it, the only, as, as the current laws are, um, the only person who, the only individual person thing that can be the inventor, the author of something is um, uh, at least the sole inventor and sole author is uh, an individual. You can't have an animal be the inventor. You can't have... I'm telling uh, you my cat can be an inventor? <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately <God>. not. So, <laughs> uh, tell uh, Pico my condolences. <laughs> but, um, oh man, he has high hopes and dreams. <laughs> the yeah the it's the unfortunate reality we got to get better cat rights <laughs> um, but yeah the uh you can't get uh you can't get ownership of ip if you're not a human being and uh, it's only humans that have that right and so um as it currently stands when an ai invent uh invents something um the other aspect is the human needed to put some sort of input into that mm -hmm. for the output to uh come about right there are some fringe scenarios where AI might be just autonomously creating stuff. That's where you get some sort of murkiness of who is the actual owner and, uh, and whatnot. But um, yeah, as, uh, as a whole, it would be the person giving the input into the generator of AI, regardless of how little that may be. Um, a perfect example is when we went from paintings of, um, of artwork to actual um, to photographs. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, it used to be back in the day, you just, you had to take a lot of time to draw something. But then when you got to uh, photographs, you click a button and then the photograph's done, right? So uh, it's definitely a very different kind of, um, it, 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 it's a different thing because there's so much more that AI does. Yeah. But then at the same time, it is similar in that you had this huge workload reduction that came from the innovation of these two technologies. And I think at the end of the day, at the end of the day, at least from an, from my perspective as a lawyer, the the ownership still goes to the person that's giving the direction. 
mm. um, to create these things. And so, yeah, um, some of the terms of service, you got to read those. Um, <laughs> a lot of these will still give the ownership to the, um, the individual. Um, but yeah, um, I think that's generally how it tends to stand. And I think part of the reason that the ownership will go to the individual for some of the uh, for a lot of this generative AI is because uh, these companies don't really want the liability of all that random IP being created if it's, if that is ultimately uh, infringing. So yeah. So that applies to like uh, image generation and stuff like that too, right? Like yeah. Let's say if I use Mid Journey to create a logo. Yeah. I'll say yeah. I've done that, but yeah. Well, I mean, well, <laughs> again, I'm not sure about the terms of service for Mid Journey, but uh, yeah, I would imagine it would like. Uh, I would imagine that would be the case. You know, they it, as long as you are providing some input to to direct the technology, mm. then you should be the owner of that intellectual property because you were the one that uh, put in that originality of the work, the, the effort in to be able to create that work. So we've heard Chad GPT pass the bar exam and things like that scored pretty well. Yeah. And one of the recurring things we talk about on this podcast also is like the future of different professions. Uh, last time we talked about the future of accounting. Before that, we talked about the future of coding or developers. Um, the future of lawyers, how do you see that playing out? I think uh, I think this, uh, honestly, like I use ChatGPT for what I do, right? Yeah. Um, I use a lot of the generative AI. I, I, I give talks at the University of Windsor and I use MidJourney to create my nice. photos for the presentation and stuff, yeah. you know? Um, I think uh, the reality is this is going to become part of our workflow. It's just like Microsoft Word um, back before when we had... Uh, typewriters and whatnot before that um, is going to change the industry. I think ultimately what it means is that there's going to be a lot more work. Uh, I, 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 okay, I'm an optimist in this way in that <laughs> I think that this generative AI will ultimately just lead to more productive output. And as a result, it means more legal work for people like me. Um, because back in the day, like I think of this in terms of patents, um, about 30, 50 years ago, the number of patents that were filed every single year were probably like a hundredth of what is currently filed every single year right now. Oh, really? But you know, there's been innovations in technology, mm. more better software, better computers, all that. Um, and that's inc increased output. So I think you're going to end up getting more output um, as far as lawyers go. And also at the end of the day, I mean, there's a certain amount that I, I'm always a little bit skeptical of how much generative AI can truly replace. Like the trust that you get with a lawyer I don't know if that can really be like really be covered by a computer. Um, maybe it can, maybe it can't. But uh, and then also just the executive decision making. Like in my job, everyone wants a fall guy. Yeah. Um, you know, like <laughs> blame the AI. <laughs> well, that's the thing. When you cannot blame something, like when was the last time you actually got away with blaming? Uh, outlook for an email not getting sent, <laughs> you know, like um, the reality is like, I think I have said that, <laughs> Hey, I typed that email. I don't know why, but didn't. how many people believed you? That's the question. That's the question. Not a lot. I'm pretty sure I was just trying to, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, we, just, I just forgot to send it, but yeah. we've all had given that excuse. Right. Yeah. But we, everyone knows that's kind of, um, uh, that's not entirely truthful, but the reality is, yeah, like y y it's hard to put technology as a fall guy. But as a lawyer, you deal in a world where you need to be the fall guy for everything if things go wrong. So you have to be really careful to know that you are actually right when you say something. And um, because if you aren't, you will be the fall guy. And I don't know if any company is ever gonna want that liability. 
And I don't know if people will ever be comfortable in not having a fall guy. Mm. Um, as long as people are the ones making decisions at the end of the day, I feel like they will always want another person to be the fall guy. So, yeah, I think my job's safe in that respect, but, yeah. uh, I think it definitely help increase output. Like, you know, I use it right now. I, I, I've had, uh, you know, sometimes drafting a patent application would take me 40 hours. I've cut that down sometimes to like, um, 10, 20 hours using wow. generative AI to produce certain aspects of the patent application, you know? So, um, yeah, it, it depends so much on the invention and how well known it is, well known some type of technology might be in the art and whatever. Yeah, yeah I, I generally share the same view as well in terms of like the optimist view mm -hmm. about AI and how it can improve our productivity, at least for our, well, at least while we're still here. Yeah. For our kids' generation, I don't know, they might be screwed. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it really, I think it's going to really suck for anyone in the next five years who hasn't really moved up into management or decision-making type of roles because those, either those roles in the more junior space where you're doing more grunt work, um, that's going to get automated like hell mm. uh, with AI. And um, I think there's going to be a little bit of this dip where there's a reduction in the amount of workforce before the actual productivity kicks in and you end up having the workforce pick back up but it's just everyone's now using this AI yeah. to have more output and you're expected to have more output. Like back in the day, I remember um, like, you know, like I, when I used to work in an IP firm, I'd be filing like one to two patents a week. Right. And uh, nowadays it's, uh, and then, but back in the day, like I'd say like maybe 50 years ago, that would have been an excessive amount of mm -hmm. patents that you would have to file, you know, like uh, for an individual to have, like for one person to have to file that would take so long. So yeah, like I think that's kind of the way that's going to go eventually, but I think you'll definitely see a dip in the workforce in the, in the interim. It'll kind of suck for whichever generation gets stuck in that. Yeah. Hopefully not us or maybe it will be us, but we can recover. I, I would like to avoid the millennials get su getting stuck in that. We've gotten stuck in the worst uh, eras of everything. Yeah. So uh, I guess what's one more thing, but continuing on with like um, kind of the lawyer and the work that you got to do. Um, you've mentioned how as a lawyer, you got to be the fall guy yeah. a lot of times. Um, you also talked about how back in your law school days, uh, it was pretty competitive. Yeah. And I think some of the, mis uh, or I don't know if it's a misconception, but a perception people have of lawyers is it's very cutthroat and it's, um, Sometimes people think lawyers are very direct, think yeah. Harvey Specter, you know, <laughs> we've talked about suits already. And that aspect might be attractive to some people, and that's why they get into law. And for some people, that's what keeps them away from law. Yeah. How much of that is, are like, is a misconception versus how much of that is reality? So it's both true and not. Um, a big part of it, it's a, it's a bit of an American thing, mm -hmm. the whole cutthroat, competitive um, profession of the law. Um, I have to negotiate with U.S. lawyers, and oftentimes I, I I have to negotiate with lawyers all around the world. But when I have to negotiate with the U.S. ones, I almost n always know it's going to be like picking teeth, you know, yeah. because that's the culture over there. It's much more cutthroat, um, and the legal profession is that way. So one thing that um, a lot of people don't know, but in Canada, when you are litigating court. Whereas in the U.S., it's common courtesy to call the opposing counsel, opposing counsel, my opponent, whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, in Canada, you call them my friend. 
Um, oh really? Yeah. So, so it's all true. <laughs> friendly Canadian. It is. It, it is a. Do you say sorry Canadian. before that too? <laughs> uh, I guess that's not required. But uh, yeah, I mean, like the, that's that's the reality yeah. of how uh, the uh, the profession it, like it varies so much based on jurisdiction, and um, I think there is a certain amount of competitiveness that is inherently there. I think in Canada it gets washed away. By the time you've done your 36-hour workday and you realize that the entire profession is kind of built on a house of cards. But, uh, yeah, like I, I think like w- when – I think at a certain point you realize we're all just doing a job and you get over it. But in the U.S., I mean, there's just – I, I feel like the, the, um, the environment's a little bit different. Right. I've definitely met a lot of nice U.S. lawyers too, but I think it is definitely a cultural thing in different jurisdictions um, – and it also depends on the profession. Like when I'm negotiating contracts, it's a different thing than when I'm litigating a court case. Um, uh, uh, when I'm in a litigious situation, the person's almost uh, very often going to be more confrontational. Um, personally, for me, my lawyering style, I believe you're able to get a lot more out of people by being nice to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, like it gets people into a false sense of security. You can still have your agenda, but doesn't mean that you have to be a an a-hole along the way, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's, um, the, I think, uh, I think you can ultimately get what you want. And at the end of the day too, we all like as lawyers, like I I've been negotiating something and like, you know, if we're, especially when we're on an unrecorded phone call or talking in person, we're both like, you know, I know your client's not going to sell. I know my client's not going to settle, but, and I know that you guys think this, right? Like, yeah. you know, we, we like, Sometimes often we're upfront in that way, you know, and uh, you guys ever get to a point where you just start cussing each other out. Um, I've definitely had known lawyers that will uh, curse, uh, yell, etc. That definitely does happen. People get very passionate in the yeah. profession. Oh, that's um, what they call it. Passionate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a, it's, it's a word for it. Um, but yeah, I, I think people definitely get that way. Um, and especially, I mean, like I get it. It's your paycheck, it's your your livelihood and whatnot. So people get really involved. And some of the scenarios are very dramatic too. Like I I've, I remember dealing in one court case where we were recording evidence that a guy's best friend uh, was recording confidentiality co- confidentially while the other guy was talking to him on the phone. Like mm-hmm. the guy's best friend ratted on him. And oh, recorded no. his phone call <laughs> to give his evidence in the court case. Isn't that legal in some states in the U.S.? It is legal. It is. Yeah. Le- it was completely legal how he recorded okay. it. Okay. Um, right? It was completely legit. It's yeah. going into court. But this guy is now going to lose a ton of money because his best friend ratted him out. Oh. You know? So damn. it's just, but like that is a very emotional scenario. Like imagine like your best friend being the one why you lost like $150 million oh, no. or whatever, right? Um, hey, you're not allowed to record <laughs> conversations. <laughs> Get that in writing. Get that in writing. But uh, it's going to be recorded in video. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but I mean, you know, you get these very emotional scenarios that happen yeah. in the law, and when you're dealing with these kinds of different legal scenarios. Right. So, yeah. It's going to be a dumb question, but so as an IP lawyer, do you ever actually go to court and be like, hey, the, 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 present a case, opening statement, closing statement. So I haven't done it myself. Um, I've managed litigation files, um, but I haven't been the one speaking in court. 
Um, I, I'm an in-house lawyer, so I get other lawyers to do the litigating. Litigation is one of those things. It's such a, you need so many specific skills mm -hmm. to do litigation. And there's so many court rules that have nothing to do with like general substantive law of what yeah. is a patent and stuff like that. Like just general rules you have to file on this day on a Wednesday while your mother's wearing a, a red suit, <laughs> a dread, red dress or something. I don't, anyway, like the, 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 there's a lot of weird rules and litigators know all of them. I, as an in-house lawyer, do not. And yeah. uh, the that's so you have to rely on your litigators for doing that. And they're also the ones that know the judges, that are good at being able to talk to the judges and stuff like that, present your case. So um, there's definitely value in a lawyer doing that and like having a lawyer to do that. I haven't done it personally. And the reality is the lawyers that do go up in court are usually the ones that are doing that all the time right. or used to do that. Litigation's very, very stressful. It's uh, the most contentious area of law. And so as a result, it's um, going to end up being something where these people are constantly in high stress situations and everything is due yesterday. So mm -hmm. uh, most of my friends that do work in litigation, they, uh, they don't have the best work-life balance. Um, and those days that I was working those 36 hours, it was almost always for a litigation file. Oh, really? So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the reality of it because yeah. you get, uh, like, it's actually a strategy in litigation to file something right before a holiday so your opponent has to work over the holiday. <laughs> um, Such an asshole move. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what you do. That's actually what you do because you hope their associate does not show up for work or does not want to do the thing so that they might miss their court filing day <laughs> or they have to rush it so that they uh, can attend their family events <laughs> or whatever and they don't do as good of a job. But man, lawyers are petty. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's that's what we do, man. That's what people pay us for. <laughs> okay, final question then. Um, to all the young folks watching this, uh, what are some words of wisdom for anybody that's contemplating to go into the world of law or, you know, has a great law? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah they, you know, I would say it's one of those things. If you want to go into law, um, I, I think my, my particular um, journey through life was kind of different because I decided to go into law very late in my studies. Um, and I think a lot of patent lawyers end up being that way. I think it's a very rewarding profession. I think it can be the right profession for certain people, um, but it's a lot of work. And I think you have to be really comfortable with knowing to do the work. Um, and at the end of the day, like to me, the thing that I valued the most out of the profession has been the people I've met along the way. Um, because you know, I mean, I, I went through this whole journey, including that girl who kicked you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Maybe not her, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, like my, some of my best friends are the ones that I met through school, yeah. you know? And, uh, I think, uh, having gone down this path, gone through a lot of studies, I was in school for nine years and, uh, I've met a lot of people that were very educated, very smart people. And, uh, it helped me be a better person as a result. And uh, I'm happy to have those people in my life now, but I wouldn't have done that if I hadn't gone down this particular career path. You know what I mean? So I, I think uh, have a passion for it. Enjoy what you do. Um, that's all you can really do when going down this. It's a long, long grind, um, but it's worth it in the end if you're enjoying what you do. Um, I, I think so anyways. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think anything that's worth it in life involves a lot of work and yeah. grind that you got to put into it. Yeah. Nothing's going to come easy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think that's really what uh, um, what makes things valuable at the end of the day, um, gives them their value. But I, I, I think at the, I think when you're talking about uh, um, your profession, like, yeah, that passion's just unbeatable. Um like it's got to be the thing that drives you because otherwise you're going to hate it. And I know a lot of people that get into the law and just hate what they do because they hate the law or yeah. they hate what they're doing. There's got to be some aspect of it that you like because you're doing it a lot every single day and you cannot sit through a 36 hour work day. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't care about it. Exactly. If you don't care about it. Yeah. 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 And I think that's, uh, it goes back to the first thing that you said when you came onto this episode, the good scientist turning into the great lawyer. Yeah. Out of passion. Yeah. Yeah. Like, well, yeah, exactly. Like, and yeah, it was, it was a matter of opportunity, and I think, uh, yeah, if you've got that opportunity where you see yourself and you can see yourself being a great lawyer, um, I think it's definitely something that uh, um, to worth going down. One thing that I did do, and I think this is some actual pragmatic advice I can give to people, is talk to people in the profession. Um, I talk, I spoke with a lot of lawyers when I was making a decision to go to law school. Um, and, you know, if, if it wasn't for seeing people successful in the profession and knowing what their journey was like, I don't think I would have made the same decision that I did. So um, I think that is some actual practical piece of advice I can say. Wow. All right, awesome. Um, anything else from your side? No, I'm good. All right. I think, uh, well, thanks a lot. Uh, my, I, sometimes I confuse if I should address you as Araf or Nirba. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> for, uh, for, I don't know if there's going to be a behind the scenes or what, yeah. but uh, in, uh, in our family, we've got uh, two names, everyone in the family. Except and me. I got one name. Well, I mean, technically you were supposed to have two names, but you just <laughs> chose true. the one. Yeah, <laughs> right? that's true. But um, yeah. but yeah, like, and yeah, so, I mean, everyone in my family calls me Nira, but in my le- my legal name is Araf, so. Yeah, so either way, so thanks a lot for coming onto the podcast, Araf slash Nira. <laughs> Brown Mike Ross, we'll throw a third <laughs> one in there too. Big brother Brown Mike Ross, yeah. <laughs> Uh, we definitely learned a lot from you and I think this is very valuable information also because as you said there's so many startups now coming out of AI uh, and within tech and everything like that and I think patent is something you don't really think about until it's too late a lot of times so uh, I hope a lot of people learn something from this take something out of this and uh, we have you to thank for it and obviously thanks for taking time out of your busy day I know uh, to come down here and with that we are Tuning out, we got. Thank you for tuning in, everyone. We got Navid again, myself, <laughs> Salvi, and we got Arab slash Nirab slash Mike Ross slash Harvey Specter signing out. All inclusive. All right. uh, thank you very much. Right, thank thank you. you. We out.